Hi, I'm Holly. And I'm Haley. Welcome to Mountain Mysteries, Tales from Appalachia. Okay, so how's your week been? Oh, so far so good. Um, just enjoying this fall weather. How about yourself? It's good. I have been doing all of the like checking on our downloads and where all we have the listeners from. And it's as of like right now. Is it now, just my mom? Yes. I'm sorry to tell you we only have two listeners and it's your mom and my mom. Well, I thought so. Lorraine okay. and Lucretia. That's okay, but I'm happy... That's true. I'm happy that they're at least supporting us. No, it's not, right? It's actually more. Yeah, more than it is. It's just totally our parents. More. We have made our parents proud, and we have like 89 people listening to this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, that is 87 more than I expected. I know, same. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So they're from 16 different states. Wow. Which is wild. And our second highest listener population comes from Washington State. That's incredible. Thank you, Washington State. Thank you. Please email us so we know that you're real. <laughs> exactly. I hope it's not just like one guy, right? It's Who's one just guy like just downloading it like twenty over and over times. and over. Yeah. Well, it's because of our sexy voices. Right. That's what it is. It's totally what it is. I thought so. And we would have an international listener. What? In England. <gasps> oh, jolly good. I know. I thought it was my aunt Susan, but I'm not sure. So, Aunt Susan, if that's you, please let me know. And Susan, do you live in in England? She does. All right. So, you want me to tell you a story? I like stories. This feels good. Yeah. Hit me. Well, not not literally. (laughs) Hit me with the story. (laughs) Okay. One more time. All right. I'm going to hit you with this crazy one. And it is back in like the golden decade of the 1930s where all good things were happening. You know, like the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Such good things. I remember All the good things. We're out of the roaring 20s. We're going into the Great Depression. We're living life. Yeah businesses are closing dust bowl area era um there's a lot of great stuff going on yeah so i'm super pumped to tell you the story great all right so this... you really built it up i'm super excited <laughs> okay yeah it's, it's a good one so this story actually takes place in Asheville. i'm familiar we yeah. both used to work that's correct and now we do not work in Asheville. no um so this story happened in 1936. It was a murder. And a murder, case, you say? Yeah, a murder. Mm. A murder in the South. Uh, this case is technically solved, but there are a lot of people, myself included, that don't believe that everything is exactly what it seems with this mm. case. So strap in. I will. (laughs) I am strapped and ready to go. So the Battery Park Hotel, which is now actually an apartment building for seniors, Hmm. was built in 1924 in Asheville, North Carolina. It is 14 stories tall and is described as a neoclassical structure. Ooh, beautiful. Do you know what a neoclassical structure is? I do. I did not. I had to Google it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. You know. So it's kind of like, think how the White House is built. That's kind of a Mm, neoclassical mm structure structure um and back when it was built locals felt like the building was actually too cookie cutter and looked like all the other new buildings going up across the country but tourists loved it 
Um, and anyone who lives near a tourist town knows that tourists bring in money. Especially in Asheville. Oh, yeah. Asheville is a tourist town. That's how they get their money. Um, and if you all don't know, Asheville is home to the Biltmore State. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest tourist attractions that's there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the local government decided that, hey, we're going to keep it like it is um, because tourists bring in money and we like tourists. Yeah. So they actually loved it so much that there's been several famous guests that have stayed there, like really? Babe Ruth. What? Ty Cobb. F. Scott Fitzgerald, Grace Kelly, Boris wow. Karloff, O. Henry, and Thomas Wolfe, to name That is so crazy. Yeah, so it's been like a, it was kind of the place to be back in the 30s. I know that in the 20s and 30s, a lot of prolific writers came to this area, and yeah. they like to have a good time here. Yeah, well, it's so pretty and picturesque, and... And it's, it's where uh, you get down. Right. You so... Down to boogie. Our folks in other states, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> take a trip to Asheville, take a but trip not to now because COVID. Yeah, that's true. Not now. Don't come because Don't of come COVID. Here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, our freeways are pretty packed, so maybe just wait a while. Yeah, maybe just just Google us, where it's it's yeah. pretty to look at. Just yeah, look on YouTube. <laughs> so another guest who has become famous is Helen Clevenger, and if I say that name wrong, I am so so sorry. But I looked for ways to pronounce it, and I think it's Clevenger. Well, this we're talking the '30s, so chances are she's not listening. Oh, no, no, she's she's for sure dead. Oh, like definitely. Oh, well, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to dive into that in a second. Ooh, nice. So she was 18 and was about five feet tall and 100 pounds, so teeny tiny. Just like me. I don't remember the last time I weighed 100 pounds. It's been a, it's been a, yeah. a decade. I, I, think, <laughs> I think my left leg weighs 100 pounds. Same. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, she was on a road trip with her uncle William across the country over the summer in 1936, and they decided to stop in Asheville. They had friends in the area and knew that this place was beautiful and just wanted to stop and see the sights and do the things that you do in Asheville in the 30s. I don't really know what was going on in the 30s here. Um, She was a student at NYU and was super excited for the trip and sent letters home to her family throughout the trip to let them know how it was going. And it was supposed to be kind of a week-long, like, weeks-long trip. So, when they arrived in Asheville, Helen was given room 224 at the Battery Park Hotel. And then her and her uncle went to have dinner with friends, and they returned to the hotel around 10.30 p.m. on January... Sorry, not January. On July 15th, because it's the summer, not the winter. Uh, so Helen's uncle went to wake her up on the morning of July 16th, 1936, and couldn't get her to come to the door, and he knocked several times and finally tried the doorknob and found it unlocked. And when he went in, he found her laying on the floor, her pajamas were covered in blood, and she had been shot in the chest with a 32 caliber pistol and had been beaten. Oh so gosh. she was, she's very dead. Uh, The police were immediately called to process the scene, and the sheriff at the time was Lawrence Brown. And at the scene, the police discovered a shell casing from the pistol, and the shell casing had an H engraved on it. Uh, And they were also collected fingerprints for comparison to a suspect when they eventually had a suspect. And the medical examiner would later say that there was no evidence on Helen's body that suggested sexual assault. So, silver lining, I guess. Yeah. And DNA technology was not really a thing in the 1930s. Right. So, that was not collected. Obviously. Right. 
Um, after the murder, there were several people questioned. The police really believe that whoever killed Helen uh, had to have worked at the hotel to be able to kind of get in and out without too much fuss. Mm-hmm. Um, over 60 hotel staff members were interrogated along with several guests. Daniel Gaddy, who was, from what I can understand, kind of like a security guard. Um, several articles I read said that he was a hotel detective. So I'm taking that to mean um, um, security guard. Yeah. I feel like that's a very Dwight Schrute thing. You know, like, <sighs> I'm actually the hotel detective. Right, right. You know. I think, I think you're right. That. Um, so he reported that there had been people that had come down and said that they had heard a gunshot and a woman scream that night. And he went up actually to the second floor to check it out and saw that nothing was out of the ordinary. And there had been a storm that night. So he kind of figured people must have heard thunder and, you know, maybe people were getting a little crazy and that's what it was. And it wasn't really a gunshot. So he didn't see any evidence. So he said uh no well and being the detective right right like he did his he did his bare minimum job i was gonna say that is very bare minimum i would have probably knocked on some doors and just said is everything okay you know we heard some some noise some ruckus but least he he bother anybody so yeah i guess he was just being respectful right so he just kind of good detective just kind of checked out the hallway said no nothing going on here i'm gonna get back to my donut (laughs) (laughs) that coffee's getting cold it is Uh, So the police actually took the shell casing with the H on it to someone who sold ammunition and asked them where someone would buy that. And the seller said that no ammunition like that had been sold in Asheville in the last 10 years. So to me, that means somebody had to bring that with them. Right. Or it was just a really old box of ammunition. Right. And and yeah, I mean, that just doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't. I mean, I don't own guns, so I don't know well, a lot about, like, do you just buy ammo and put it back for 10 years? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, does that stuff go out of date? I mean, I don't, I, no, I don't think like, so. Okay, I, but, I'm I don't sorry. Know, My ammo is a decade old. Let me reload with something fresher. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how that works, but could someone have brought it from another state? So someone who was traveling. That's a good question. So four people also reported to police that they had seen a suspicious person lurking around the hotel. Uh, The only solid clues that they could come up with after questioning everyone was that there had been several reports of people seeing a lanky man jumping 15 feet from a porch, kind of like a porch balcony thing off the hotel. And a shell shell casing from the gun was found in the room. The lanky man was described as being white around five feet foot nine inches tall and weighing around 160 pounds so after questioning all these people the cops focused in on two bellhops joe yuri and ld Rody, who were both black men and these two swore they had nothing to do with the crime and after being questioned by police the police really had no proof or way to tie them to the crime so they let them go uh, our next suspect we talk about will not be so lucky oh my yeah So, after not a lot of progress, the NYPD was called in on August 7th, 1936, because Helen was from New York, so the NYPD sent down a couple detectives. Good idea. Um, Yeah, these two detectives were Thomas Martin and John Quinn Jr., and they began re-questioning people to see if they could uncover anything that maybe the Asheville police had missed, or maybe they just didn't think to ask. That's impossible. (laughs) 
don't think they wouldn't have missed a thing. Right. right. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, sometimes fresh eyes are a good thing. You know, re-go good. over yeah. stuff. Especially, see. I mean, you've got the NYPD who probably sees this a lot more often. Yeah, yeah. More than the Asheville PD would Right. Have. Used to kind of bigger cases. Um, yeah. Didn't turn out to be a good thing in this case. Oh, no. Yeah. So one of the hotel cooks, Banks Taylor, told the cops that the hall boy slash janitor slash hotel employee, Martin Moore, owned a thirty two caliber revolver. So, a little bit about Martin Moore. He was 22 years old. He was a black man that was working at the hotel. He lived on Hill Street in Asheville. And by all accounts, he was close with his family, was well-liked in his community. He had this big family. Um, All the pictures of, like, him and his family, they all look really close, and it's really sweet. And when asked by police if he had a gun, Moore said, yeah, he did, and that he would take him to where he kept the gun. And he took police back to his house and gave them the gun. It was wrapped in a burlap bag and he had put it under his house, which like weird place to store a gun. Yeah. But maybe that's just where he kept it. Maybe there were other people in the house. He didn't want them to get a hold of it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not really pro gun, but if you have a gun, wouldn't you have it where it's handy? I mean, one would think. I mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, intruder. I've got to dig under my house for my pistol. Right, yeah. So I don't know. That kind of made it look a little suspicious to me, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know. He cooperated with police and agreed to answer questions. And according to Sheriff Lawrence Brown, Moore confessed to killing Helen. Just, you know, confessed to it. Mm, Without Uh, any coercion at all. Um, so according to Sheriff Lawrence Brown, he said that Moore had confessed to wanting to rob someone. So he went around trying doors in the hotel to see if he could get in. And when he got to Helen's door, he found that it was unlocked. So he just went in. Oh, Helen. Yeah, oh, he never was, keep your door unlocked. No. Well, she may not have. Oh. Listen, this is a crazy story. Things okay. get a little wild here. Okay. So he was surprised to see that she was there. And when she screamed, it scared him, and he shot her. Now, I already have issues with this, because if the door was unlocked, why did police later find a key in the door? And she was beaten. Right. He claimed he shot her, never said anything about beating her. That seems like a weird detail to leave out. Right. But these inconsistencies didn't really matter that much. The police got a confession, and that's really all they needed. The NYPD sent Moore's gun to a lab in New York, And the lab reported that it had found hair on the gun that was similar to Helen's because the evidence showed that she was beaten with the gun. So you would think her hair would be on it. But I don't know. I don't know how advanced like hair comparison technology was in the 1930s. So they're saying that she was pistol whipped. Yeah. Basically. Okay. So he shot her and then pistol whipped her. Right. So I'm guessing she wasn't dead when he shot her. And so he decided he needed to finish her off kind of thing. Maybe. I don't Hmm. know. There's not a whole lot about like the technical. Because he never even said he beat her. He just said he shot her. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what happened when or how. But regardless, Moore was indicted and put on trial on August 19th of the same year. Wow. At trial, Moore claimed that his confession had been coerced and that he had been beaten with a rubber hose until he confessed. So, Mm. yeah, I'm kind of seeing here that 
maybe he didn't actually do it right yeah but i don't know i'm not saying i'm not not saying yes or no here i don't know um a psychiatrist actually took the stand and said that martin uh moore had confessed to him again four days after he confessed to police so that kind of sealed the deal there Mm. that this was a true confession in the judge's eyes at least Moore and his family actually claimed that he had an alibi for that night and he was actually at a birthday party for a relative. So there were tons of people that saw him, wow. that claimed to see him the night of the murder. Right. Granted, they were all family members, but still, that's a lot of... It's a lot of people. Right. That said that he was somewhere other than killing a girl. So he actually wasn't at work then that night. Right. That's what So colleagues didn't say like no, he wasn't even on duty. And they may have, but there's just not a whole lot of record gotcha. because this they needed a this case to be closed. Yeah. I to guess me, there was a lot of pressure too. There was. I mean, it's a at that point Asheville's not a huge place. Right. You know, this is a small city and then someone like New York cops are coming down and there's a lot of pressure to solve this right they want this done and closed yeah so Moore um actually said to the court that he had given the gun to ld roadie that bell popped that questioned earlier and that roadie had returned the gun to Moore the day after the murder so Okay, so I'm guessing that he, like, once they did the ballistics, the forensics, and they found the hair, then he had to say, well, you know, I loaned it to my buddy. Right. It's kind of like when you find cigarettes on your kid, and they're like, <laughs> oh, funny. they're not mine. No, I'm just, holding them, I'm just holding them for a friend. I don't smoke. What are you talking about? Right, yeah. I don't know. Something's weird about that. Yeah, it definitely, definitely felt weird. Um, Moore's attorney, Jay Scoop Styles tried to get Moore's confession thrown out, but after the psychiatrist said his piece about, you know, him confessing, Judge Don Phillips approved the confession. And this was really all that prosecutor Zeb Nettles needed to make his case. Uh, the prosecutor said that they had found fingerprints on the lampshade and they were a match to Martin. Um, this is actually a lie. They found out later um, none of the fingerprints were usable. Wow. So he just said that, hey, we found these fingerprints and they match, but none of the prints that they collected were able to be used wow so. and that's okay he didn't have to back it up with oh no, no no this is the 30s oh, okay yeah. right the jury deliberated for one hour and returned a verdict of guilty one hour to determine a man's fate yep you wow. wanna guess uh how the jury was made up like what kind of people it was um i have a feeling and I, this is just me going out on a limb here mm-hmm. Uh, 12 white men. <gasps> You're right. Oh, man. Wow. That was really going out on a limb. I'm right. right. Wow. I mean, I assume they were men. I didn't see anything else, but I don't think women could serve on a jury in the 30s. Well, they got the right to vote in 1920, but I don't know about when they were allowed to be on juries. Yeah, I don't know either. Anyway, they were all white regardless. Mm. So after he was convicted, he had to go to sentencing and Moore was sentenced to death um, in New- North Carolina's new method of execution, the gas chamber. Oh, my. Yeah. So the NAACP had actually been monitoring the trial and initially reported that the trial was fair. Uh, they had second thoughts, though, and tried to save more. But Moore's lawyer tried to appeal the conviction, but it was denied due to him missing a deadline with the appeal. Are you kidding? Wish I was. 
Because on December 11th, 1936, Moore was led into the gas chamber in Raleigh, North Carolina and was executed. Reports say that Moore was shaking and crying as he was led to his death. So let's just recap for a second. The Mm -hmm. crime happens in July of 36. By August, he's arrested. um, And the trial happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. And he's executed by December. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, Could you imagine being an innocent or, you know, if you were innocent and you're led to your death? No. Oh, my god! I don't even want to think about it. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it was horrible. And... It's likely that he didn't even commit this crime. Of highly likely. I mean, it's totally possible because, I mean, half the freaking evidence was a lie. Exactly. So I don't know. I don't know. So I said earlier that there were several people out there that don't believe that Moore was the killer. And I have a few alternate theories that I think are important Ooh, to alternate consider. Alternate theories. I'm, I'm excited. Hit me with them. Yeah. One more time. So let's go back to the suspicious person that was lurking around the hotel. Now, if Moore was there that night, which his family says he wasn't, but let's pretend he was, he would likely not have been considered suspicious. He would have looked like he belonged there, probably dressed in his uniform and walking with confidence because he worked there. Right. And he would know the ins and outs of that hotel. Moore also doesn't match the description of the lanky man. Moore was much taller than 5'9 and was black. Right. So one possible alternative suspect was Mark Wollner, who was a 35-year-old German violinist. Wolner had lived in Asheville for two years in an apartment across the street from the hotel. And he had apparently told a friend that he had a date at the hotel at 10 p.m. the night that Helen was killed. So a guest in the hotel, uh, E.B. Pittman was his name, he was in the room across from Helen's. And he woke up at 1 a.m. when he heard screams. He went to the hallway to see, you know, what's going on. And he reported speaking to a man who was standing in Helen's doorway. And this man reassured him, you know, everything's fine. So Pittman went back to bed. So after Pittman told police, they actually sent Pittman over to the Grove Park Inn, which is another famous hotel in Asheville. Mm -hmm. And Wolner was there playing his violin. And so they sent Pittman over there to see if he could identify Wolner as the guy he'd seen in the doorway that night. Uh, My question is... Why are they sending Pittman over there by himself to identify a suspect? That's not um, scary at all or intimidating or, you know, good job. Right. I mean, it's also the 1930s. That's true. Hey, yo, buddy, why don't you go over there and check him out? Right. We'll <laughs> just go, you know. go see if Why don't you guy... just go listen to his concerto and see if it could be him? Yeah. So, I mean, 1930s, not that shocked that this is a thing that's happening. Right. But Pittman did it, and he came back and reported that the guy looked like the person he had spoken to, but that the voice didn't match. Didn't have the same voice. Hmm. Wolner was detained in jail and questioned by police, and I think he actually spent several days in jail while being questioned. And the county physician, Howard L. Sumner, examined Wolner and said that he had had a cut on his left foot, a bruise on his left heel, and a strange brown stains on his clothing. Poop. Right, maybe. I'm thinking blood. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So blood dries brown-ish. So, yeah, I was was going more with blood, but maybe poop. Maybe you had a really rough (laughs) night. (laughs) 
just couldn't make it. Just just crapped himself. Yeah, no, he was that it. scared. Yeah. Oh, God. So all of these injuries were consistent with jumping from, let's say, a 15-foot-high porch. Ah. Mm. So Wolner claimed that he was not actually at the hotel that night and he had stayed in that night and the landlady at the apartment building confirmed this. However, there were several people that said, hold up, we saw him out and about that night. He was reportedly seen at the hotel restaurant slash bar at 10.30 p.m., Hmm. was seen around 2 a.m. on the street, uh, was seen at 6 a.m. drinking coffee, and then was seen returning home at 6.30 a.m. And a neighbor even claimed that she saw him coming up to his apartment and that he looked injured. So he was kind of limping on the stairs coming in. But apparently none of this mattered, and he was released on July 24th from police custody. Hmm. Which kind of infuriates me. For sure. Because Martin also had an alibi, Martin Moore, and that was ignored. And no one can actually place him at the hotel, but there are all these people that said that they saw Wolner out and about and acting all weird, and it's not an issue. I guess not. But, I mean, Wolner was white and Martin was black, so that... And, I mean, you've got someone who's a violinist. Yeah. Did you say cellist or violinist? Violinist. Violinist. Yeah. Someone who's a violinist, he's probably, you know, somewhat distinguished, you know. People know him. I think that just changes. I mean, in a way, he was probably a little bit more upper class, so money money and privilege talk. Yeah. Especially at that time. Well, now, too, but... Right. Yeah. So I think that is just... I don't know. It's... It's real An sad. interesting theory. Yeah, so that's kind of the first theory. Okay. The alternate theory. So I've got the German violinist in my head. Yep, German yeah. violinist. Okay. He's a possibility. I think he may actually be the most likely possibility. Now, this last theory is actually the one that got me into this case. Okay. As I saw it when I was researching for our Halloween episode, our haunted stories episode. And this just kind of came up and I was like, holy crap, this is crazy. So the other theory is that F. Scott Fitzgerald might have been involved. Wait a minute. The writer? Yeah. Okay. The writer. Yeah. Huh. So let me tell you a little bit why Okay. we think this. So he was actually staying in Asheville at the Grove Park Inn for a while during the summer of 1936 after he had admitted his wife Zelda to Highland Hospital. Which was the local mental hospital. Right, right. So she had a lot of mental health issues and was admitted there for psychiatric treatment um or whatever you want to call mental health care in the 30s because prison right not great yeah no no so fitzgerald was actually injured in a diving accident at beaver lake and injured his shoulder and required a kind of a home health nurse to take care of him during this time and Mm -hmm. there was an article published on september 25th 1936 entitled the other side of paradise Scott Fitzgerald, 40, engulfed in despair. And this was written by Michael Mock and was published in the New York Post. And he had interviewed the nurse that was caring for Fitzgerald. And I'll read you kind of a section from the article and tell me what you think. Okay. So, quote, Physically, he was suffering the aftermath of an accident eight weeks ago when he broke his right shoulder in a dive from a 15-foot springboard. 
But whatever pain the fracture might have caused him, it did not account for his jittery jumping off and onto his bed, his restless pacing, his trembling hands, his twitching face, and its pitiful expression of a cruelly beaten child. Fitzgerald admits, A series of things happened to Papa, he said with mock brightness. So Papa got depressed and started drinking a little. What the things were, he refused to explain. One blow after another, he said, and finally something snapped. Um, well, first off, I just want to say I appreciate that he refers to himself in third person as Papa. Right. Um, that's odd. And sounds like he was, uh, if you, you think about it, 15 feet. That's the same, right, from the porch? Yep. Of jumping off? Um, were there witnesses at Beaver Lake who saw him do this? I think he probably did have this accident. Okay. But I don't know why. I mean, to me, like, was he just a wuss? Like, why does a shoulder injury require you to have a home health nurse? He's a man. <laughs> Sorry for all you men out there uh, listening to us. But, I mean, you know, maybe at this time he was a writer. Yeah. So maybe it was his right arm. You know, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe. Um, Eight weeks before the article was written would have been July 1936. Because back in the article it said eight weeks ago he suffered an accident. So him saying blow by blow. Yeah. I just snapped. Yeah. So Fitzgerald actually had a suicide attempt at the Grove Park where he tried to shoot himself with, you guessed it, a thirty-two caliber pistol. I want to guess how tall Fitzgerald was. 5'9". Yeah. Dang! 5'9". Lanky, like lanky, lanky 160-ish. White dude. 5'9". So I don't know. That's all the information there is out there about Whoa. that theory that I've been able to find. Um, I just thought it was interesting. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, the most important thing is, though, that this young girl was murdered. Absolutely. And... It's quite possible an innocent man was put to death for this. I mean, that is horrible in itself, but also, you know, Helen may not have actually got justice. You know, if right. this guy didn't do it, if Martin Moore didn't do it, then her killer's been, you know. Was able to walk freely and potentially yeah. do this again. Right, and live a whole, you know, long so, life. And and I actually don't know the history. We'll probably have to learn a little bit more about Fitzgerald. Um, did he end up... I, I don't think any of these writers at the time, because they all lived a kind of debaucherous life. And right. Had a problem with, with alcohol. Um, I don't know that he lived a very long time. Did he go on and write more? Did he live a life of, as they called it, melancholia back then? I don't know. I mean, I think Fitzgerald had his own demons. Mm. Um, and whether this contributed to it is, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's just so many different wow. little things that kind of come up. What if we, what if we cracked this case? What if we now said, oh yeah, look at that. We've solved it. It You're, was Fitzgerald. You are welcome. <laughs> no, and we don't want to say that. This is all, of course, um, don't come at us. Right, don't um, sue us, please. Yes, no, this is all just, you know, speculation and yeah. theories, but and it's it just is super, a really good one. Yeah, they're just super interesting theories of, you know, was it this violinist guy? Right. You know, could it have been Fitzgerald? Could, you know, did Rhodey that he gave the gun to have something to do with it and he was covering for a friend i mean right. who knows um but i mean so that's that's the story of helen clevenger wow 
that was fascinating. Yeah. That was eerie and fat. I mean, you know, there's so many possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it's it's technically solved. So it's not By an open us. case. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yep. A uh, man was arrested, tried, and executed for the crime. So it's, you know, in the eyes of the law, this case is over, closed. So I yeah. I would love to see this case reopened at some point. That would be pretty cool. And I mean, what evidence would there be left? Right. I mean, yeah. You know, there's... I mean, although the Battery Park Hotel, um, now known as the Battery Park Apartments, um, it is still standing. Yeah. Um, and I know they've done some remodels over the years, but essentially it is the exact same building that it was yep. at that time. So, you know, they've seen a lot of guests and a lot of people living there. So it's probably not like they can go back and <laughs> yeah. let's come for evidence, you right. know, 80 years later. Who knows? So please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really actually helps us to reach more listeners. Give us a follow on Facebook at Mountain Mysteries Tales from Appalachia. Follow us on Instagram at mountainmysteries.appalachia and send us an email at mountainmysteries.appalachian at gmail.com and feel free to send us some spooky stories to share, uh, some case suggestions, or you can just say hi. Yeah, just say hi to us. I mean, we always need new friends. Right. Hit me up, yo. <laughs> oh. You want to be my buddy? Do you want to give us a hint about your case next week? I totally I- ignored you. Please don't. Don't ignore me. <laughs> I want to be your friend. Okay. Uh, my case next week uh, involves an unsolved crime. Uh, it's actually technically still open. So I'm going to be sharing a little bit about a murder that happened at Mars Hill College. Dun, dun, dun. A murder. Mars Hill College. Yeah. And it wasn't F. Scott Fitzgerald, as far as I know. Bummer, man. I know. I, I know, we were right? Get him two weeks in a row. So, not Fitzgerald, <laughs> but we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye, Holmes. Hit me up. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>